Hey guys, uh, my name is Vince. I've been attending New City for 17, almost 18 years. I have recently been hired as our next-gen summer intern, and I have the honor to read the Bible passage for today. We will be reading James 3:18 and James 4, 1 through 10. All right. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New City. I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I hope we get a chance to do that um, this Sunday or maybe in one of the weeks to, to follow. Uh, today, we are uh, continuing our series in the book of James. And I know that you had all expected to hear from our brother Rodney Gray, as had I. Um, but unfortunately, he lost his voice on Wednesday and uh, was unable to speak. So um, I'm standing in his stead today. But um, we are so honored to just bless Rodney and Jacqueline today on their last uh, official Sunday here. But this isn't the last you'll see. Of the Grays, they'll, they'll be back um, visiting with us, I hope, quite frequently. Um, and they'll join us after the 11 o'clock as well. But I hope you get a chance to uh, just talk to them today. And we're going to spend some time at the end of the service just praying for them and, and blessing them today. Um, well, I thought the, uh, the, the passage today uh, was, was apt uh, for the place that we find ourselves as a community because it's really a passage about community. You know, in the book of James... Uh, it's a book of wisdom that's really showing us what it looks like to fully out, live out the gospel. When we fully live out the gospel in our lives, like what does a life transformed by Jesus look like on the ground in real life? But the nuance today is that the shift is uh, that kind of in the background of James all along, there's this look at what does the community look like, not just the individual life, but the community life. But today, kind of that picture of community life with Jesus comes to the forefront of the passage. And so uh, we're going to be taking a look at God's vision for Christian community today, uh, which I'm really excited about because that's a passion of my heart. Um, and as I was thinking about this passage, um, 
Uh, a recent memory came to mind, uh, something that happened in my yard uh, that wasn't, uh, wasn't my favorite time of uh, things that have happened recently, but um, anybody have a Bradford pear tree in your yard? Oh, I hear like, oh, moons, oh boy. Yeah, we know the Bradford pear. The Bradford pear emerged, I think, like in the 1980s as like God's gift to suburban America. Um, that, you know, you can plant this tree and it sprouts up like almost instantly and it's beautiful and has all these flowers. But the problem is it's not made for the environment, um, the context of, of Charlotte or of North Carolina. And so it actually is a fragile tree. And when it gets too big too quickly, um, it snaps and, and it breaks. And so um, I was actually standing in my yard. I was grilling out had my little dog. I have a little, uh, if you haven't seen a picture, I'll show you sometime soon, but he's a little uh, 12 pound toy poodle. He's standing there. We're grilling out and we just hear this crash. And uh, I go running around the corner and our Bradford pair had fallen over on our brand new fence, which was amazing. Um, that was awesome. And uh, I was standing out in the yard and I was looking at this tree and thinking, ah, such a shame, you know, this beautiful tree and now I have this mess to clean up. And it was one of those moments I just took, and I'm like looking around my yard, and um, I notice on the other side there's a, a, tr- a smaller, like little cypress tree I just planted, and apparently I didn't do a great job because it's like leaning over, it's sticking out of the dirt over there, and I thought, man, that's another thing I gotta, get, you know, get over there and fix. And then I kind of look from from there to to the one tree I have in my yard that's like still standing and and looks nice, and it's this oak tree. It's this oak tree. And, you know, as as I looked at those three trees, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this where you just, like you're standing in a place and you're seeing something and you sort of have this epiphany, this realization. And the realization I had is I thought, you know, um, this is like Christian community, isn't it? Um, some, Some community that, you know, it's just, it's not planted in the right place. It's not quite right for the context. And so, you know, it looks beautiful for a little while, but then the storm comes and then it, it falls over and it breaks. And, and the little tree is like a community that's, that's planted, but it's planted too shallowly. The roots never take root in the soil and it just falls over. And then there's this magnificent oak tree. And I found myself thinking, you know, man, what if our church looked like that oak tree, you know? Deeply rooted, beautiful. If you've ever seen an oak tree, it provides life for everything around it. In fact, it, it provides so much life that in the, in the spring, little shoots of little trees appear all over the yard because it can't help but multiply. And I thought, what a beautiful representation of what community ought to look like. Well, James gives us such a vision for Christian community in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. And when you read this verse, you might not think of it like this is a picture of community, but I want to explain it because I think it's quite beautiful. He says, And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And those who are peacekeepers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. What is he saying? Well, I want to hone in on a couple of words. The first word is the word righteous. What does the word righteous mean in the scriptures? It means to be made right. And in this case, it's talking about relational rightness. And there's really three kind of spheres of rightness in relationship that we're talking about here. We're talking about first, right relationship with God. That comes as no surprise, right relationship with God. Second, right relationship to yourself. Because I think most of us, when we're laying in our bed at night, 
alone and honest, we know we often don't have a right relationship with ourselves. We often haven't dealt with our stories in the way that we ought to. Um, And then finally, it means right relationship with others. And it's really that third aspect of righteousness that we're going to talk about today, because I think that's the emphasis of our text. So it says, those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So it's a picture, it's an image, just like the tree in my yard of, like, what does it look like when relational rightness is springing up in your life? What does it look like when your relationships are reaping a harvest, that they're fruiting, that there's life flowing out of everywhere? And how do you achieve that? And he gives a clue. He says, the seed of relational rightness is peace. It's peace. And he said that the the people who give the peace are the peacemakers. And so he's pointing us to something saying, if we want to experience the beautiful community that we long for, if we want to experience a community that looks like that oak tree that's vibrant and rooted and it's not going anywhere and it's reproducing life all over the place, then we have to plant seeds of peace and we have to be ourselves peacemakers. And so this is God's vision for community, and it's a beautiful vision, and I think it's a vision of something that we all long for. I think it's part of why you're all sitting here this morning. You know, a few more words on, on community is that if you think about it, community is prime reality. What do I mean by that? I mean that God himself is the perfect community, Father, Son, and Spirit. God did not create the world. He did not create you and I because he was lonely because he had need, he created out of an abundance of life. And the abundance of life was the perfect community that exists in the generous, loving, giving relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's the very nature of God. And so prime reality is actually the most beautiful community you could ever imagine. And because of that, the place that we're invited to become truly human is in community. In fact, it's impossible to be fully human outside of community. And that's why Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, there I am. There I am among you. And so Christian community particularly is the place that we're invited to become, to become like God. And this is the vision for the church. I'd also like to submit that uh, probably our experiences of Christian community are not reflective completely of God's vision because we're all fallen and sinful people. You know what they say, if you find the perfect community, don't join it because you'll mess it up, right? Because none of us are perfect. But God's vision for community is that uh, the church, the community of fellowship would be this magical, amazing place for us to be real, a place to take off our masks, a place to stop pretending, a space where we can come and where we can experience the life that is truly life. And I think that's the life that we long for as a church. And I think that's what God longs for us to experience. Well, if that's the thing that God wants for us and it's the deepest longing of our own hearts, then the second question is, what keeps us from community? What keeps us from community? And I think The answer is in the next verses of James, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? 
And if you've spent like five minutes with another human being, you know this is our nature, right? Our nature is not peacemaking. Our nature is not getting along with one another. That given enough time, given enough circumstances, given enough stress, what happens? Fighting. Fighting, disagreements, discord. And so it's our fighting in the nature um, of humanity that keeps us from the community that we desire. I think there's another reason that uh, often we are kept from the community we long for, and, and, and that's just that we're indifferent that we're indifferent, that, that we don't pay attention, that we just are sort of gliding through life and, and, and not really thinking about the significance and the place in our lives of Christian community. Maybe for some of you, Christian community is just this side thing. It's, it's a side thing that, you know, you add on to your life, but that's not God's vision. God's vision is that our togetherness would be at the center of our life. Maybe for some of you, what keeps you from Christian community is just busyness. I know that's true for me. When I look at my calendar and I think about a longing to be with other people in a really genuine way, to be known and to know, to give and to receive, I look at my calendar sometimes and there's no space for people. And maybe that's true for you too. So what keeps us from community is sometimes indifference, sometimes it's just simple busyness. But what James really gets at here in chapter four is that it's fighting. It's fighting and quarrels. So which begs the question, why do we fight? Where does fighting come from? And he tells us in verse 1, he says, something is at war within you. Something is at war within you. And this is not necessarily great news. It's not news that we want to receive, right? Because when we think about reason for discord in relationships in our own life, where do we tend to go? I'll tell you where I tend to go. Been married almost 24 years, coming up June 12th. Next year's the big one. I've been told I better start preparing, better have a good gift, better have a plan in place for 25. But, you know, after almost a quarter century of of being married to the same woman, um, I can tell you that um, it's something in me. There's something in me. And there's something in Janet, there's something in each of us that calls us to quarrel, but my nature is to blame her, right? An argument comes up, it's, it's something she said, it's something she's done, not something I've done. And I think that's probably true for all of us. But James is very clear, he says, you know what, what, what causes the discord, what causes the fighting? It's something at war within us, which is, also begs the next question, Well, what is it that's at war within us? Well, he tells us, he says, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? And then there's a key word in verse 2. He says, you want what you don't have. And then he goes further. So you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war, powerful language, to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see, at the heart of relational discord, why are we not righteous in our relationships? Why don't we have a community like that oak tree that's vibrant and rooted and giving us life like we dream of? And it's because 
of our desires, it's that we want things that kill us. And we want things that kill others. What do we want? Well, I can only speak for myself, but probably if you're honest with me, you'll resonate with some of these. I want often my own comfort. I often want to be in control. I want to be the boss. I want things my way. I want things to be convenient for me. And it's really this sense of my own comfort and control and convenience in the sense that, you know, all of those preferences are more important than anyone else's preferences, right? It's that that's in my own heart, right, that creates relational discord, that creates fighting. And then you imagine an entire community of people where everybody is after their own comfort and their own control and their own convenience, and what do you get? Nothing like the oak tree. You get a split and fractured Bradford pear. You get a tree without roots falling over. What you get is, is death itself. You know, the one principle of hell, and this is a quote from George MacDonald, he says, the one principle of hell, if you want to sum up hell in one sentence, is I am my own. I am my own. And so, uh, when we live this way, we're actually mirroring a life lived in hell. Remember what Rodney taught us a couple of weeks ago, that when we use our words, right, um, we're either speaking words of life or we're speaking words of death. We're either echoing words of heaven or we're echoing words of hell. And so it is as we build and live in community that we have a choice about our posture and our orientation to relationships with one another. And the scriptures teach us clearly that our bent and our orientation is to fight and to want things that kill us. And our orientation to our life is that my life is my own and I want things my way. Further in the passage, James tells us that there's this dichotomy between pride and humility and that it's our pride that leads to the discord in our relational lives. Well, I want to talk for a minute about what is, what is this orientation where I am my own, uh, where pride rules, where relational discord is the order of the day. Uh, what does that look like uh, more precisely? And uh, I don't know if you guys follow this, have followed this in the news or not, but um, one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific, Christian writers uh, in the Western world, uh, pastors, speakers, uh, Tim Keller, actually passed away this week after a vibrant ministry, preaching through the scriptures his whole life. Um, and, and certainly he's one of my heroes of the faith. And so I thought, today I have to honor Tim Keller and, and um, quote him at least once. And so Tim Keller, when he wrote um, a sermon on this passage, he, he actually quoted one of his heroes in the faith, Jonathan Edwards. And um, he describes what this life of spiritual pride looks like. And I just want you to listen to this. And I'll just, I'll be candid with you that as I read this and as I was studying, um, it was very hard for me to read this because so many of these things resonated with me as ways that I'm inclined to be oriented in relationships. He says, first of all, spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own but humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than others. Does that resonate with anybody? That you're really aware of what's wrong in other people, but not so much aware of what's wrong 
in you. Secondly, pride leads you when you speak of another's faults to have an air of contempt and disdain. But humility, a humble person, means whenever you do speak of people's faults, you only ever do it with grief and mercy. Contempt and disdain. Man, when I read that, I thought immediately of two conversations I had just this week where somebody was irritating to me in a conversation and I talked about them to my wife and I confessed that before you today. And when we do those kinds of things, you see um, we're, we're, we're echoing hell and not heaven. We're making ourselves the sinner instead of others. Thirdly, pride leads you to quickly separate from people who you've criticized or who criticize you. This means you're cold to them or you avoid them. But spiritual humility means you stick with people even through difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. Isn't that what you long for when you join a community, when you're part of a family? Don't you long to be in a place where people don't give up on you? Where people don't turn their back on you and hate you and have contempt for you just because you're irritating to them? It's what we all long for, but we do these things to others. Fourthly, a proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because everything the proud person believes is major. John Calvin had a friend named William Farrell, and at one point he was very candid in one of his letters and said, Farrell is always fighting with people because he can't stand to be contradicted. All of your beliefs, the major ones and the minor ones, um, is a major belief. Fifthly, a proud person either loves to confront because you like winning, or proud people refuse to confront because you don't want criticism and controversy. But a humble person confronts when it's necessary. If you overlove confronting or hate confronting, if you do too much or never do it because you're afraid, you're not humble. Humble people confront necessarily. Proud people confront too much or too little. And maybe that's you. I find myself not wanting to confront, and I always thought that was a point of valor. Like, look at me, I'm good and spiritual because I don't like conflict. But as it turns out, it's an indication of a sinful heart. Sixthly, Edward says, a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for himself. Here's the reason why. Proud people are filled with self-pity because first, they're so sure they know how life ought to go. And secondly, they're sure they deserve a good life. But humble people say, I deserve to be cast off, but only by God's grace am I living. I don't know if any of that uh, resonates with you. It resonated certainly with me that we all contribute to relational fracturing, right? And so if we left the message there, it would be a hopeless message. You would go home and I don't know what you would do. Um, probably you would fight and you would argue and you wouldn't have hope. But there is hope. The summary of all that. Um, and this is what Keller says, is he says, it's either uh, my life for me, that's our one choice to be oriented in our relationship, that my life is all about me, or my life is for your life. My life is for your life. And I just want to pause here and just ask for a moment, what would it look like in your relational world, in your home, with your family, with your children, with your loved one, in your workplace, with your neighbors, what would it look like in our larger community if hundreds of times a day you made the decision that, you know what, I'm not going to be oriented in this way of, 
uh, my life for me, but instead I'm going to be my life is for other people. That no matter how irritating people were, no, ma no matter how difficult circumstances were, what if you made the tiny choices a hundred times a day to say, you know what, I'm going to lay down my preferences and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that other people are more important than I am. You know, I'm, I'm going to lay down my privilege. I'm going to lay down my wealth. I'm going to lay down my convenience in all the small and subtle ways that we could do that in our lives. And, you know, when we leave that at a theological abstract realm or we say, you know what, as a community, let's just do good works and whatever, then it really doesn't have any power. But if you begin to think about it in the inmost places of your relationships, it's an incredibly shocking idea. And, and I, was, I was moved by it. I was convicted by it because I'd thought about my own marriage. I thought about my relationship with my 16-year-old. And I thought of all the ways just in the last week as I was studying for this message that I didn't do that. That I got my way. You know, there's, there's, there's too many things on the kitchen counter and I don't like it that way. And so you all need to like stop what you're doing and you need to hear, come in here and you need to clean up. Or, you know, I don't, I don't want to eat that for dinner. I want this. It's the small, petty things, but when we live a life where life is all about us, where it's all about our control and our comfort and our convenience, we echo the words of hell that we are our own, that our life belongs to us, and we can never achieve the kind of community that we long for. So what's the answer? How do we get there? How do we achieve this life that's for other people? And James doesn't leave us hanging. He, he gives us indication, and it's really in verse 6. And this is the most important verse in this whole passage. So if you don't catch anything, catch this. He says, and he gives grace generously. He gives grace generously. And just talk for a minute, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting a gift that you did nothing to receive. And this is God's heart toward you. This seems weird, but in, in uh, verse 4, he uses this word. He says, you adulterers. And in the, the Greek, it's actually adulteresses. And he's not just talking to women, though. What he's alluding to is this idea that the way God looks at his church is that he is like a husband to a bride. And that's the intimacy with which he loves us. And so he lavishes out his grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness upon us. And so we're not left to our own devices. We're not left to our own ways. That God gives us a way out. He gives grace. Well, how did he give us grace? Here's the way. And it points back to the gospel. In verses 6, 7, and 8, here's what you need to catch from this. How does God give us grace? to live in a way that we are powerless to live on our own. It says, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, verse 7, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Here's the deal, friends. The Lord Jesus came, remember, a member of the perfect community that existed before anything else. And he left that perfect community. 
He left the sanctity of the peace and the graciousness and the love and the generosity of the the most perfect community in the entire universe. Why? Because he loved you and you and you. And instead, he entered into a dark and broken world and he humbled himself. He did what is in verse 7. He resisted the devil. You remember his temptation in the wilderness. He perfectly stood against the devil Against the most powerful evil force in the universe, he stood. And the devil fled from him. But catch this, that the Lord Jesus came close to God. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane just before he gave his life for you and for me. He came close to the Father and he wept. And then what happened on the cross is shocking The father turned his back away from him. So the God of the universe left heaven, humbled himself, resisted the devil, showed what it's like to move in relationship toward God, and God turned his back. The father turned his back. Why? So that when you humble yourself imperfectly, when you resist the devil imperfectly, when you stumble and you make mistakes and you sin, over and over and over again, when you come close to God in your imperfectness, struggling, meagerly trying to make your way to God in an imperfect way, guess what? Because the Father turned away from Jesus, God will come close to you. And friends, that's our hope. That's the way to the community that we all long for. It's that we would humble ourselves, that we would say, you know what, my life is not about me, it's about other people, and I'm gonna follow in the way of Jesus, and I'm gonna do it by the power of Jesus. He says, let there be sorrow and deep grief, let there be sadness, that counterintuitively the way to the cross, the way to the life that you're always longing for, isn't striving and getting what you want and manipulating people and relationships, you know what it is? It's laying down your life in the way of Jesus. And God promises that as we grieve deeply our own brokenness, as we humble ourselves before him, as we consider one another better than ourselves, as we resist the devil as best we can, as we try to come close to God, he will come close to you. And that in that, he'll make us peacemakers and he'll plant seeds of peace and we'll reap a harvest of righteousness. And here's the final thought. And this is God's vision for New City Church. This is God's vision for your community, for your family, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that not only will you benefit from it because you'll be like that tree planted, rooted deeply, unmoved, You'll be like that tree with life coming forth from your life to the world. But guess what? If we commit to doing that together with God's help, then we are the shining light on the hill, that we are the example to the world of what heaven looks like. And that's God's plan and that's God's dream for us. To God be the glory, amen. Well, friends, I want to um, end my time by inviting our dearly beloved friends, Rodney 
and Jacqueline to come forward. And we want to act like a Christian community now. And we want to say to Rodney and Jacqueline, we love you guys, that you've blessed us with your life, that you, you have been rooted here, and that your life will keep giving life even when you're not here anymore. And we want to bless you with our words today. And there's something that's powerful in the Christian tradition, and that's the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands is a physical representation of a spiritual reality that you are not alone. That there are no goodbyes. There's only see you later. That in the kingdom of God, we'll be together. And we just want to bless you guys. So I want to invite you, um, anybody that wants to come forward and lay hands on Rodney and Jacqueline. And Rodney and Jacqueline, I want you to feel the weight of the community. Come forward. I know this is different. Different for if you can't touch them, touch somebody in front of you. Let's get as many hands on them as possible. And as they feel the weight of your hands, they feel the weight of God's community. They feel the weight of a community of God's people saying, we want to find life in you, Jesus. And we want to bless you guys. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of community that we're not meant to journey alone. We thank you for our brother Rodney and our sister Jacqueline, Lord. We thank you for their life among us, for the way that, Lord, you demonstrated your love to us through their life. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifices that they made to be here with us. We thank you for the truth that they taught in their words and in the way they lived. Lord, we thank you for their friendship and the way that their friendship and the way they loved people reflected your love for us. And so, Lord, we want to bless them this day. Lord, we ask that you would make your face to shine on them, that as they travel, they would feel the radiant glory of your presence. Lord, that they would know they're not alone. Lord, they would feel the guiding presence of your spirit. Lord, that you would provide all that is needed in this next season of their life. That you provide friends and community, material needs, purpose, and Lord, we pray that you would bless them with deep joy and deep peace. And Lord, we pray that we would send them in a way that'd be pleasing to you, in a way that they would remember that they are deeply loved. And so Lord, we thank you for this day and for who you are in Jesus' name, amen.